Welcome to the City Collective Church Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that in today's message, you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. series right now as we are walking through the gospel according to John. If this is your first time here with us, welcome. Um, my name is Jason and I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here. We are considering the story that John provides us and asking ourselves questions along the way. What, what, does, what does it have to do with us and what is it revealing to us about who Jesus is? So the first three weeks, John 1, John 2, John 3, uh, the prologue, the first sign, the wedding at Cana, Jesus turning water into wine, and, and then John 3, the, the conversation with Nicodemus, the, the scholar with a question who gets the response that he wasn't expecting. Uh, and we're going to take a little bit of a leap, and we're going to go from uh, chapter 3 to chapter 11, from the first sign in the wedding of, at Cana to the, what is considered by scholars the final sign before we see the journey to the cross. And it's a, it's a large passage of Scripture, so I'm not going to uh, have too much of a, a preamble here, but we're going to dive into the text. I'm going to jump through it a little bit because it is 42 verses, so um, we're going to just take some, a couple chunks of it, and then we're going to dive into it together. So John 11, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read the first seven, and then we're going to jump, jump to the next portion. So it says here, uh, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back up to Judea. Jumping to verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So in the Jewish tradition, Martha would have had a familiarity with this belief that there would be a rising again of the people who were the people of God. And so this is what she's referencing. But then Jesus responds to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? He's saying that I've, I'm coming and I'm interrupting that process. I'm bringing it before you in the here and now. Verse 27 says, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. There's still a little bit of skepticism for her. Going to verse 34. Jesus asked, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. In the, verse 35, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. 
But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind men have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for it has been there four days. And within what the Jewish people believed, after three days is when the spirit actually left the body. So they, they, they believe that at the fourth day is when it was almost too far gone. So they took away the stone. Sorry, verse 40. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Verse 41. So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, all those around, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So it's a powerful, powerful story. And if you, I would highly encourage, take a moment this week, go to John 11, read it through for yourself. There's some bits in there that we, uh, we move quickly through, but uh, I hope that you caught the gist of what's taking place. There's a lot of elements within this story. Now, when we consider this for ourselves, um, we, we talk about this idea of, of expectation. And I know we all carry expectation in how we live our life, our interactions, our relationships, uh, even just the, what we do in our, in our downtime. We've got an expectation of what that looks like. I know this past weekend, we, took one, we had an activity that we very much enjoy, and I, I imagine some of you as, do as well, and we went to chapters just to peruse some books. It's just to walk around and take a look and, and, and see how many books that you would probably look at, put on your bookshelf, think that would be a great book to read, and then leave it there so you can go buy a new one in the next week or so. Um, and it's, it's a great practice to go through. And so we went and did that this weekend, and we really enjoyed that. And uh, I went home this weekend with a, a book from Brandon Sanderson, and I know some of you have read some of his novels, and uh, it's from his Mistborn series. And he's a writer who incorporates this immense fantasy world, immense amount of world building and detail to create this, this universe for us to, to dive into. But here's what, here's what I recognize when it comes to this like fantasy genre. Uh, there's, there's a fair amount of reality within it. Though the world may look dramatically different, often the human elements of interaction and relationship very much stay the same. How people respond and they plan and they think. It, it, it's the humanity of it that often actually draws us within the universe. It makes us believe perhaps, well, that is something that I could understand and, and be part of. In, in, in his first book of his Stormlight series, Way of Kings, Brandon Sanderson, he, he says this about expectation. He says, expectations were like fine pottery. The harder you held them, the more likely they were to crack. And I would agree with him. I think that there is power in expectation. And it can dramatically inform our reality. And this can make us people who are either driven or perhaps feeling a sense of apathy because of the weight of expectation. Uh, English poet Alexander Pope 
he, he uses the, the framing of the Beatitudes to talk about expectation. And he says, blessed is he who expects nothing, for he shall never be disappointed. We've all been there at some point, right? We feel like we've, we've had this expectation and it's fallen short. And we said, well, it would have been better if I expected nothing. But there's a morbidity to it, isn't there? This sense of uh, giving up hope completely to abandon expectation doesn't seem like it would have the fulfillment that we would want either. I think we've all been there. And expectation that we carry, especially within relationships with one another and with God, it can be a confusing filter to our current experiences. Now, this final sign from Jesus in John 11, I think, is loaded with expectation. There's so many different people in this scenario who have an expectation that something is going to happen according to the relationships that they have. From the disciples to the, to the onlookers to sisters Mary and Martha to, to Jesus himself. And, and we don't even hear very much about Lazarus prior to this story. Uh, Lazarus is a character who just kind of comes onto the scene. And the familiarity we have with Lazarus has more to do with the relationships around him. Uh, Lazarus, all we really know is his name means God has helped. He's the brother of Mary and Martha. And there are characters that you, you might be familiar with, that we are familiar with within the biblical text, because there's a story of Jesus going to their home, and we're not going to open that one up, but Jesus goes to their home, and there's a relationship there. So even baseline, Jesus has a relationship with this family. And it would seem that their expectation, based upon their understanding of who Jesus is and the relationship that they had with him, would be in line with what they say. I think we actually deeply empathize with Mary and with Martha. It, it all kind of makes sense, this passage, right up until verse 5. And then verse 6 comes, and that's when the story kind of deviates from what we would come to expect. Rereading it, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's an establishment of relationship. So, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. It doesn't seem to follow the narrative. So like I said, I think we easily empathize with Mary and Martha. Their brother has died, and they know Jesus to be more than simply what, they, what others might say. But perhaps the question that we need to be asking this morning is not simply what is the expectation that they have in this moment or we might have in this moment. But what does Jesus actually expect from himself in this moment? What does he expect of everyone else? And what is he inviting us into? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the, the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine and is articulated as the first sign of Jesus' ministry. And throughout the next 10 chapters, there's this point at which the, the scholars identify seven different signs that take place. But now, when I hear this idea of signs being shown to us, I think we can come to this conclusion that the actions that Jesus are taking are simply to indicate who he is. That that's, that's the reason that he's doing what he's doing. That the sign, that illustrating that, that point is the purpose behind his action. But 
I think there's an important distinction to be made when reading these passages. See, Jesus, he heals the selfish and the proud. He, he heals the entitled and, and spends time with the greedy and the sinful because Jesus didn't come for those who were perfect and prepared. Jesus came for the broken and the sinful. Regardless of whether they got it or not, Jesus came to be with them because that's what love does. Love motivates action regardless of what others might say or think or respond to it as such. The exterior and the circumstances cannot change the simple fact that God loves us. Therefore, the actions and the signs as we see them to be that are taking place are not Jesus saying, I'm going to do this so that you simply see who I am, but they are signs that show who he is because Jesus cannot keep his divine love under wraps. To, to act in situations that require healing, to bring change and, and reconciliation where there might be brokenness. This is the divinity of God coming into his exterior actions. Jesus' actions are an ex outward expression of his divine identity. It was simply Jesus being who he is. And it's meant to give us a glimpse into the world that God has imagined for us and, and what he's inviting us into and a glimpse into the world as it should be. This is the purpose of these, these signs. For us to simply know that this is who Jesus is. Eugene Peterson says, Signs and wonders, miracles and mighty works are certainly part of the story. Yes, an essential part of the biblical story and its continuation and outworking in the Christian life. But out of context, they're simply things. Miracle commodities that are bought and sold on the religious stock exchange. This is not about Jesus gaining clout so that he can do what he does. This is about Jesus being who he is. And so, if we take that as our, as our baseline when approaching this story, a story, like we've said, that is full of expectation, let's then pay attention to where he's coming from. So at the very beginning of the, the narrative, Jesus, he is away with his disciples. And if you notice where he's coming from, part of understanding Jesus' response is understanding where he's coming from. The geography helps tell the story. He's in the wilderness when he gets this news. And what is Jesus always doing when he's in the wilderness? Well, he's praying and he's wrestling with the Father's will. He spends time with the Father. And the way that Jesus is told about in this story by John, it would seem that it's more likely that Jesus is doing what he's always done in the wilderness. He's actually listening to God's voice. And in order for Jesus to be who he is and for Jesus to do what he does, he has to spend time that necessary time in the wilderness because this moment of going to Jerusalem was going to be it. There was no going back after going to Bethany. Bethany is in short proximity from Jerusalem. This is a decision that Jesus would live or die by. If he brings Lazarus to life, he knows that this is the end for him. There's been a plot throughout this gospel. 
beginning in chapter 6 and continuing to past this moment, and the plot is building. In chapter 8 and chapter 10, there's actually attempts on Jesus' life that, that take place. They don't like Jesus in Jerusalem. They're scared of him. The religious authority, the political authority, they're concerned that the Romans are going to send in soldiers to deal with the situation that they feel is rising, that the temperature is growing within the population. And so they're concerned. And so Jesus understands if he goes from the wilderness to Bethany, this would begin to initiate a sequence of events that there was no going back from. And we know this because even the response of his disciples, when he tells them, we're going to Bethany. The response of Thomas, Thomas, who would be Thomas the Doubter, is, well, come along. I guess we're, we might as well all go together to die. They were fully aware that for Jesus to make the decision that I am going to go from this place where I'm seeking God's will is to actually go to the end. This was a significant decision. This is more than simply hearing that someone is sick and wanting to go to them. This was the beginning of the end for Jesus. So he takes a couple days to pray for direction. And then he tells his disciples, we're going. And love moves with purpose. With knowledge of what it was going to cost, he still goes to Bethany. And they arrive to find Lazarus dead. And it's a morbid scene. And he speaks with the sisters in the midst of their grief. And he shows them love. And love in, and love in different ways. Uh, perhaps you've heard of it before. Perhaps this is the first time. But there's the idea of love languages that we have within our relationships. Ways that we communicate to one another that is meaningful. How do we receive love? How do we show love? Uh, th there's five categories that are kind of articulated. Uh, acts of service, gifts, physical touch, quality time, and words of affirmation. Uh, I fall in the category of tell me I look good and give me a big hug. So like words of affirmation and physical touch are, are my two love languages that I fall into. But for, for my wife, for, for Adriana, I understand quality time is the manner in which that she experiences love within our relationship. So her birthday was on Friday, and so we made the decision that we're going to spend time together. I made the decision that the way that which I can best show love to my wife was quality time, that it was wasn't actually the particular uh, events that we were maybe taking part in or, or the activity that we were going to do. We were going to enjoy some food. We were going to spend committed time together. I was going to put away my phone. I wasn't going to be checking the, the latest sports game, though the Calgary Flames were playing on Friday night, and I kept my phone out of my hand the entire night. That, yeah, I know, I know. That, that is like, it's a big deal. I know, it's a big deal. Um, she felt like it was a big deal, and she's like, this is the, this is the way it should be. This is, this is how marriage should be. And so you, you find ways to love people in a way that they can actually receive it. It's not just loving them in a way that you can show it. And I think Jesus illustrates this in this moment with the two sisters, with Mary and with Martha. Martha comes stubborn and angry and upset. And Mary comes distraught and, and almost full of regret. And Jesus approaches both of them with a sense of, I'm going to be in your grief with you. In many ways, the thing that he shows to both of them is God's love language, which is trust. 
We equate love with comfort, but I think God equates love with trust even when it's uncomfortable. That you can have great faith and you can still be frustrated. But to have trust is to exist in that moment of frustration with the belief that God is who he says he is. Because God doesn't operate at the point of our expectation, of your expectation. And Jesus is saying to Martha, do you know who I am? And if you say that's who I am, do you trust me? Do you trust the decision that's kind of played out in this moment? I know that you're saying that you believe that I am the Son of God and that I can do more than anyone else thinks possible, but do you trust me to actually be the fulfillment of that truth in this moment? Your brother will rise again, and I'm not just talking about the resurrection to come. This is what Jesus is saying. I'm talking about the resurrection that's the here and the now. Because pay attention to the way that the verse is actually provided to us. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to show you the way to resurrection and to life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. That is to say that for Jesus to be present in the moment is to bring new life. To, for Jesus to be present in the moment was to bring resurrection. And so for Jesus to come to the tomb, for Jesus to come to a place that was going to be the beginning of the end was for him to say that Lazarus is going to come back to life because I'm going to give of myself. This, this is what he's presenting to Mary and Martha, even in this moment. And, and how he does is, is so beautiful. And I think it's a note for us, even as, as followers of Jesus, and even just as human beings, just to understand simply this. Grief is not the same for everyone. For those who are onlookers, for, for Martha, for Mary, even for what the disciples would have likely experienced in that moment, grief is not the same for everyone. And too often, we are guilty of wanting others to grieve in a way that we are comfortable with. But grief comes in every form. Accusation and anger, sadness and regret, See how Jesus chooses to respond to both. He was present. That is the underlying theme of his response to grief. He chose to be present. And to see them with love. And his response is profound. Because I think that the, the challenge that we face, especially within our, our intellectual Western culture, this, this chapter, I think, makes an enduring contribution to what's called Christian theodicy, which is the practice of trying to justify divine goodness in the midst of brokenness and evil. This is, this is a fact that we're constantly confronted with. How does a good God exist in this broken and evil world? Because let's call it for what it is. Death is Evil, it's, it's brokenness coming to its fruition. It is not the intention of God. Life is what Jesus brings, what God brings into his situations. There's this, this is the overlying question for maybe this story, but also for us. And Martha and their Mary, they're facing it in this moment. 
They're the sisters of a dead man at this point. And maybe John doesn't address this question directly, but he does show a Jesus who comes alongside his loved ones in adversity and mourns with them. John 11.35 is the shortest verse in the Bible and the best one to start off with if you want to up your scripture memory game. It just says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now, this is not the only time in the New Testament where someone cries. But the way in which John writes this passage of Scripture is a little bit different, and it's probably actually more accurately translated, Jesus burst into tears. It's, it's, a, it's a violent response. So much so that those around are taken aback, and they say, see how he loved them. See how he loved him. Jesus' weeping was motivated by his love, and how powerful is it that before Jesus delivered the miracle, before he demonstrated his authority, he demonstrated his empathy. Because first and foremost, when we are asking the question of how does goodness exist in a broken world, Jesus wants us to know and experience this revelation that he is with us. And while we're waiting for our expectations to be met, and we are confused as to why it does not look the way that we hoped it would look, he wants us to know he is with us. And this is meant to be a comfort in the real world that we are facing. The, the mystery of God's love is not that our pain is taken away, but that God first wants to share that pain with us. And out of this divine solidarity comes new life because Jesus moves into the center of the struggle, into the center of the pain. And in 2 Corinthians, it says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So where Jesus goes, freedom can happen. Healing can happen. Wholeness can happen. Resurrection can happen. Because Jesus says, I am the resurrection. This is the truly good news, is that God is not a distant God. He's not a God of revenge, but he is a God who is moved by our pain. And he participates in the fullness of the human struggle. This is and it was his identity. This is Jesus showing who he is. But then I wonder in this moment, who is Lazarus? What's the identity of Lazarus? I don't know if you caught it as we were reading it, but within the first five, uh, first six verses, there are five times where John identifies Lazarus as something. Sick. A man named Lazarus was sick. Mary, whose brother's Lazarus, Lazarus now lay sick. The Lord, 
the one you love is sick. The sickness will not end in death. He heard that Lazarus was sick. This is the first six verses. Over and over again, this is how John identifies Lazarus. Add to that that he was from Bethany, which is a town meaning house of the poor or, you guessed it, sick. Sick is the main identifier for Lazarus. And there's, there's some other ways that he's known as. He's known as a brother. He's known as beloved. We see that in verse 3. And we also know that he's known as dead. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. This is the way that he was identified. This is the way that he was known. This is who he was to those people. But there was one more thing that John provides through the words of Christ that tells us about the identity of Lazarus. Jesus claims his own identity in verse 25 when he says, I am the resurrection and in the life. But previous to this moment, John writes that Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. That is to say, Lazarus is the one through whom Jesus reveals himself to be the resurrection and the life. That Lazarus is actually the site of revelation, the site of resurrection. He's the site of where God's glory is actually meant to occupy. He's the locus of God's son being glorified. Lazarus is not a sick man. He's not just a brother. He's not just a friend. He's not just a good guy, and he's not just a dead man. Lazarus is the locus of God's glory. And this is, this is so exciting to me because Lazarus is you and me, dead in our sin, past the point of no return. And Jesus comes to the tomb, and he says, come forth. Because you are the locus of God's glory. That is who you are. You are someone who is identified through the eyes of God as being able and, and present to hold the presence of God in your life because you are designed to go from death to life. Death was not your original design. Life was. Therefore, the place of resurrection is within Lazarus. It's within you and I. He says, Lazarus, come forth, and he knows him by name. This is what God does. He takes us from death to life. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He made, came to make dead people alive. You are the locus of God's glory, dead in every way possible, and yet the place where resurrection is meant to occupy that is our promise that is given to us through the person of Jesus. And, and here's the truth. Maybe you're here today and you're like, yeah, I've given my life to Christ and it has been uh, quite a journey ever since. This is what we see even within this story. The enemy wants to take away new life. Because Lazarus, he comes out of the tomb and then the next chapter he goes to a party with Jesus and the religious authority are not happy that he is there. And they actually put together a plan not to just kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus again. To kill the one who has been brought to life. Why? Because he is a witness to being God's glory. He's a witness to what it is to having God on the inside of him. He's a witness to what God is capable of doing in the world because people came to believe in Jesus through Lazarus. 
So if you are feeling as if you have made this decision of going from death to life and you have experienced the spark of that revelation and then it has felt as if all walls are caving in around you. Take this as a testament of this truth that God has brought you from death to life and the evidence of the resurrection might be coming, might be so more true because of the persecution and the hurt that you're experiencing in the moment. It might feel like more than you can handle. Poor Lazarus, dude just came back to life and they're already making plans to kill him again. But isn't that how it feels sometimes? I just got it right. I just started to follow Jesus and now it feels like all of my, my life is falling apart. The enemy does not want you to be who God wants you to be, the locus of the glory of God. Because if the locus of the glory of God is who you are, that means the presence of God is within us. And if the presence of God is within us, that means resurrection power is within us. And if resurrection power is within us, then every place that we go into, every conversation that we occupy, that resurrection power goes with us, flows through us, works for us, and works works through us again and again and again. This is the power of the glory of God working in our midst that Jesus is showing in this moment, and this is just Jesus being who he is. Jesus is saying, Lazarus, I want you to be a living testimony. So here comes Lazarus. I want you to picture this with me. It's four days supposed to smell awful. The body should be rotting. And he says, roll away the stone. And he calls out, Lazarus, come forth. And out comes this dead man walking, breathing, but I find it incredibly interesting that it says that he's still bound. Still got the grave clothes all over him. It looks like a zombie almost. Still wrapped. Still covered in what others would perceive as death. And this is a picture of so many of us. That Jesus has brought us from death to life. That we are breathing but we're still bound. And it's a horrible predicament to be breathing, but to still be bound. Bound by the pain of our past, by negative thinking and relationships, by habits and addictions, by guilt and shame that we feel bound by. Bound and breathing Jesus does what only he can do. And here's the beauty of this moment. He invites the people around to participate in the miracle. Jesus brings resurrection. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And then he looks to everyone around. And he says, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Do you hear that invitation this morning? This is the church. 
that Jesus does the work of resurrection. That he brings newness of life. And he says to us, take off the grave clothes and let them go. It's time to participate in the miracle. To remove that which binds. Resurrection happens through the divinity of Christ. And it happens through the power of community. You need to get around them. You need to get the past off of them. You need to help, help her to stop hearing the words that she might have heard her entire life that are lies about the identity that Christ actually has. See, this is what the church is supposed to do. And this is what God wants to use you this morning. Wherever you find yourself in this story, maybe you're, you feel like you're in that tomb. And you need to hear this morning, come forth. I want to give you life. That invitation is given to you today. Perhaps you feel like you've heard that invitation and you've stepped out of the tomb and you feel like you're breathing but still bound. This is the invitation that Jesus takes us from death to life to freedom. If you feel like you've gotten a taste of life, wait till you get a sense of real freedom. And maybe you are in this place and you're like, I don't know why the church matters. I don't know what I actually get to do as a follower of Jesus. Is it just a feel-good thing that I get to participate in on Sunday mornings and then feel good for the rest of the week? No. You are the people who God is speaking to, who Jesus is speaking to. Remove the grave clothes and let them go. What are the grave clothes that people are wearing? Are we seeking the Spirit? Are we asking questions? Are we curious in conversation? What are the ways that we are actually saying, I'm hearing your call, Jesus. Let me do your work. I want to participate in the miracle. But this is the resurrection that's at hand. But I don't want to be a church where we are just content with people who are bound and breathing. We want real freedom. Because like it says in the scripture, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And if the spirit is in this place, then freedom is our invitation. Would you pray with me? And would you do this? As, as you close your eyes, we named three participants, three possible places for you in the story calling, hearing the call of Christ out of the tomb. Breathing but bound. Or needing to actually receive that invitation to remove the grave clothes of those around us. To be participants of the miracle. So Heavenly Father, we just pray right now for every single person in this room for the story that is at play in their own lives, wherever they might find themselves. I just pray right now in Jesus' name that anything that is, that is being felt in this moment, that the, the story of Lazarus is a testimony of the resurrection. And it's a testimony that even when we feel like we are too far gone and that death has won and it is dead to us, whatever it is, Resurrection is still possible, not by our strength, but by you.
and by inviting you in, by showing you the tomb and listening for your voice. So I just pray right now in Jesus' name for all who are here who are feeling as if they are dead in so many of the ways of, of life around them or just dead in anything that they are participating in, that they would hear the call of Jesus come forth. That resurrection power would be in this place this morning. And we pray for those who have maybe heard that at one point in their story and they're walking around and they're, they're wondering why, why I still feel so bound. I'm breathing, but I'm bound. I just pray right now in Jesus' name that you would begin to give them eyes to see and that you would put them in a place of community and relationship that those grave clothes that they've got on would start to get removed in Jesus' name. Taking people from life to freedom right now. That words that have been spoken family history that's been broken the, the, the ways in which that we have felt guilt and shame all are binding us in this room and we just pray right now in Jesus name that the grave clothes are removed bit by bit and that you would give courage to your people right now in Jesus name courage to your church to hear the call to remove the grave clothes and let them go Give us curious spirits. Give us thoughtful and ready hearts so that when the conversation comes, we might do more than just be a nice, kind Christian, but we would be a person who's a participant in the miracle that's already taking place. From life to freedom and from believers to disciples, participants in the miracle of the resurrection that is here for us today. May we be more than simply people who assent to a nice idea. But wait, may we be a people who are transformed by the resurrection, who have experienced death to life, life to freedom, and grab hold of the identity you and I are the locus of God's glory. May your presence lead us forward. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it challenged, encouraged, and inspired you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.